Welcome to a special edition of Path to Zero, the podcast about clean energy and the journey toward a low carbon future. We've traveled to New York City to take part in Climate Week conversations. Now, here's your host, Tucker Perkins. This Climate Week episode of Path to Zero, we'll be talking climate science with Dr. Stephen Koonin, professor at NYU, former Undersecretary for Science at the U.S. Department of Energy in the Obama administration. He holds a B.S. in physics from Caltech, a Ph.D. in theoretical physics from MIT. Dr. Koonin is author of the book, Unsettled, What Climate Science Tells Us, What It Doesn't, and Why It Matters. Steve, we are just so happy to have you here on Path to Zero. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Tucker. Look, we got so much to talk about, we're going to have to find ways to limit it. But just start by talking about you. I mean, clearly we've talked about it. PhD, the Honorable, you know, you've served, uh, yeah. uh, active in the Obama administration. Talk to us about your your education, your career, and what brings you up to today. So, so I'm a physicist by training, and I knew what I wanted to do by the time I was 10 years old, but I didn't know what it was called. And I was pretty good at math, educated in New York City public schools, undergrad at Caltech, PhD from MIT, and then back on the Caltech faculty for 30 years, where I did research in nuclear physics, atomic physics, and so on. The last nine of those years, I was the provost, so I had a little bit of sense of uh, what it's like to run a big organization. And during that time, I would say around the early 1990s, I started to get interested in climate science as a result of some work I was doing advising the Department of Energy. And in the 1990s, climate science really wasn't top of mind for anyone. Right. right? As, what I like to tell my students is that in the 1980s, it was kind of an academic backwater. And, and then there was the growing realization that humans can influence the climate by emitting greenhouse gases, mostly carbon dioxide, and then suddenly it took on a much more societal uh, prominence than it had uh, previously. And then, you know, after uh, I was provost for about a decade, John Brown, who was CEO of BP, came calling and said, we need a chief scientist. And I said, I don't know anything about energy. And he said, don't worry, you'll learn. And I did. I spent about two years in London as the world's highest paid graduate student, uh, learning the energy business, not so much to help them find oil, they knew how to do that very well, but to help them think about renewable energies, alternative energies. I did that job for five years, and then my friend Steve Chu became Secretary of Energy in the first Obama administration and asked me to come on as Undersecretary for Science in the Department of Energy, basically the department's chief scientist. I did that for two and a half years, uh, helping the government strategize about what energy technologies it should be investing in. What were the criteria that should be used? How does it progress technologies from discovery or invention uh, through development, uh, demonstration, and then on to commercialization? It's not a simple thing to be able to do that. And then after, um, 30 months of doing that, which is longer than the average time a Senate-confirmed appointee stays in office on average. Um, I moved back to academia, came to NYU, New York University, to study cities through big data. I thought that would be really interesting. 
did that for about six years. Cities climate? No, uh, cities, the operation of cities, the operation of cities. Uh, and all of the aspects of it, emergency yeah. services, buildings, energy use, of course, is one important aspect. And I founded a center called the Center for Urban Science and Progress at NYU that does both education and research at this data-driven nexus of urban planning, architecture, urban operations, and so on. Um, and then after six years, uh, I went back to being just a professor. I'm not responsible for anybody but myself and have been focusing again on climate and energy matters. Well, my head is spinning from all that, and it's really interesting from a 10-year-old to, to, to today. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, yeah. you didn't mention it, but you, you have written several books, I think, certainly yeah. one of my favorite books, Unsettled. You want yes. to talk about so, that? So uh, starting back in about 2014, I started to realize that the public discussion of climate science uh, was really quite disconnected from what the science actually said. And from 2014 to about 2017, I wrote a series of op-eds in the Wall Street Journal, one in the New York Times, trying to get across to people that, hey, you know, the science isn't really what you think it is. Uh, turns out the op-ed format is not a great way of getting one message across, and so about uh, five years ago, decided to write a book. And it was the first popular book I had ever uh, undertaken. Uh, the goal was to give people a look past the game of telephone that carries and distorts scientific information from the original research to the media and the politicians and let them see what was actually going on in the science. It was published two and a half years ago. Um, we've sold 200,000 copies. Uh, I'm proud to say much more success than anybody had ever imagined for a science book of this kind. Uh, there is a hunger out there for a sober, unbiased, fact-driven discussion of climate and energy matters. And really one, if you were to choose a political alignment, you're much more aligned, I think, with the climate world. Would you not agree? I mean, at least that's been the world you've played in. Um, you know, I, I think that what I tell people is uh, really the consensus science. It's just that they have not heard it uh, unfiltered. And most of your peers, at least as I, as again, as I read it, it's really, I'm not in those rooms, but most of your peers tend to start their presentations with, the science is settled, the science is, we, scientists agree. Yeah. Well, that's why the title of the book is called Unsettled, um, and almost everything in the book is right out of the UN or US government reports, or the data, or the uh, quality peer-reviewed literature. So. Everything in there is not Steve saying, but it is what the science really is saying. Of course, there are references. Uh, I don't, as an academic, I don't say anything without appropriate citations. And give our listeners just kind of a sense of some of the high points of the book about where, where you think the science is, in fact, unsettled. Well, well you know, the, the original title of the book was something like Climate Surprises. So you might be surprised to know that the U.S. government's data show, and you can find it right there on the EPA website, that heat waves today are no more common than they were in 1900. You might also be surprised to know that there are no detectable long-term trends in hurricanes over a century or so. That sea level continues to rise at about a foot a century. 
I can go on and on, but these are things that are quite contrary to the narrative that you hear in the broadcast media, the print, and so on. So we sit here today in New York City in Climate Week where our own government is spending, my words, trillions. Uh, private enterprise is spending tens of trillions. And at least Bank of America says worldwide the spend will be something in the order of 25 trillion, plus or minus maybe 5 trillion. Um, so as you said, we're spending percentages of GDP to make changes uh, to improve our climate. And if we don't... If, uh, well, to reduce emissions. To reduce emissions. And improving climate is yet a step further on. But the emissions that we are so focused on, because this is an area that I tend to be at odds with, is I'm much more focused on the short term around NOx emissions, particular oh, matter. Sure. Those things that harm our health, our children's health, our plant's health, not our planet's health. Uh, right. Those, those are quite different than greenhouse right. gas emissions. But and 20-ish trillion is being spent to improve greenhouse gas right. emissions. And I, I would say, as a sort of overarching comment, there is no climate emergency. The scientific reports give scant support for the notion that we are facing a task catastrophe. So the fact that we're at 450 parts per million of CO2 and rising, never seen levels like this before measured. Right. Well, the level of CO2 is one thing. The real question is, what impact does it have on the climate? And then in turn, what impact does the climate have on ecosystems and societies? Mm -hmm. And let me give you a, a statistic I'd like to cite, or a, fact, a set of fact words. Since 1900 until now, the globe has warmed 1.3 degrees Celsius. A comparable warming is projected by the IPCC over the next 100 years. And to get a sense of what might happen over the next 100 years, we can look at the past 100 or 120 years. And since 1900, we have seen the greatest flourishing of humanity ever. The population went up by a factor of five. The GDP per capita went up by a factor of seven. Lifespans went from 32 years to 72 years on average. And oh, by the way, the death rate from weather, extreme weather, went down by about a factor of 50. So to believe that another 1.3 degrees of warming is going to significantly derail that progress just beggars belief. Now, you've actually just introduced a concept that's rarely spoken of anywhere, and that is quality of life. Uh, you know, the focus, and many people even say, clearly we understand that it could diminish our quality of life, but it is so important to reduce greenhouse gas emissions that if it means a decline in our GDP, I might argue Germany sees that today in yeah. real time, yeah. but even if it means a return to older ways, that we must do it. It's the only thing that we can do. Well, you know, again, there is no support for a catastrophe. And by the way, your one's perception of priorities depends upon where one sits. Mm -hmm. So in the developed world, the one and a half billion of us enjoy adequate energy. It's very important for our quality of life, uh, the fact that it's reliable and affordable. But there are six and a half billion people in the developing world who do not have that energy. And they desperately need it in order to improve their economic status and their quality of life. And to deny those people the most 
reliable and affordable form of energy, which is hydrocarbons right now, I would submit is immoral. And so anybody who says we got to reduce emissions now, you better say, what are you going to do about those six and a half billion people? And there is no satisfactory answer that I've heard. Right. If you, and you've got such a great background, I don't ever know which part of it you need to tap, your, mm. your physicist training, your MIT training, your science background. If you were thinking about a blueprint about how to develop the developing world, because I have a very clear view of this myself. Right. If, if you were thinking about how to bring the prosperity that we've enjoyed into the developing world, which we all should agree that they shouldn't be denied that, is there, is there a way you see to, to, to begin to input their world in ways that would not perhaps mirror some of the same mistakes we've made? You know, it's pretty hard for countries that are in the early stages of development to uh, not see them using growing amounts of energy. Uh, most countries, when you look at the data, are on a universal trajectory that tells them that they're going to use more energy as they become more economically prosperous. As I said, we cannot deny them that. Uh, we don't have a right to do that. They're going to do what they're going to do anyway. And right now, it's coal, oil, and gas, which are the most reliable and affordable ways for them to get that energy. What, and so when the World Bank refuses to fund fossil fuel projects, uh, I think that that is just immoral. On the other hand, we can, we in the US and in Europe, can help them by trying to develop and demonstrate emissions light technologies that are no more expensive than uh, coal or gas or oil. And so I see technology development and demonstration as the lever to try to reduce global emissions in the longer term. Completely agree. Do you want to elaborate on some of those technologies? Well, you know, um, I'm a nuclear physicist by training, and so I um, admit to a bias to nuclear energy. I think in the short term, small fission reactors, the so-called small module reactors, hold a lot of promise. Fortunately, there are a number of country, uh, companies in the West that are on the verge of uh, actually demonstrating one of them in our real operations. Of course, China is going great guns on this technology as well. So that's one technology. And you think the only naysayers to SMRs yeah. would be those that say the cost just isn't comparable. Well, so you, you're a believer that that cost will scale down. I, I think we can. You know, we'll build them in a factory and we can come down mm -hmm. the learning curve. I, you know, I'm not guaranteed, but I think it's uh, a way to go and probably is the least costly way to provide reliable electricity. Yeah. And I don't think many people would disagree with that statement, yeah. correct? Yeah, that's if, right. If nuclear, particularly SMRs, could get to where we think they could get, it's the lowest cost electricity. It's the right way to do it. Yeah. yeah. Let me tell you why wind and solar are not going to do it. All right? And this country is putting in a lot of money into the deployment of wind and solar subsidies. Wind and solar only produce when the wind blows or the sun shines. And unfortunately, there are long periods in any locale, up to a couple weeks or a month, where they don't produce very much because the wind is becalmed or it's clouded out uh, from the sun. And so you need a backup system that's at least as capable as the wind and solar itself. And since the wind and solar are the cheapest, the backup system is going to cost at least as much 
as the wind and solar. So you wind up running two parallel energy systems, which is going to be at least twice as expensive. So we can't get too much wind and solar otherwise, without the backup, otherwise the reliability of the grid is going to crash. Absolutely. And then that leaves us the one element that a lot of people talk about. Well, it's, the solution is battery storage. The world has been working on batteries for a real long time. And, uh, you know, there are many um, criteria beyond just the cost. There's the lifetime. Uh, there's how fast you can get the energy out. There are the materials in the battery. Um, all of those start to be barriers to developing practical, effective batteries. And, you know, I'm worried about the safety also. We have seen uh, accidents where a battery gets minor damage from a collision and then is just not usable anymore uh, or will self-combust. So I, we've got a long way to go. I think light-duty vehicles, passenger cars, and light trucks will eventually be electrified, but uh, it's going to take 20 years or so. Yeah, and I think so few people realize that while most of us agree light-duty trucks, light-duty vehicles, maybe not some of the trucks we drive, but meeting the battery architecture from a, a passenger car is quite different than that of a UPS delivery mm -hmm. van and significantly different from a tractor-trailer bringing you goods across the right. country. So, so the delivery vans have the advantage that their routes are not very long and they pull into a depot or charging station at the end of every run and so they can have a limited range easy enough to be recharged. For passenger cars, you've got the issue of charging points, um, putting them out, charging times, uh, you know, a half hour to charge up as opposed to five minutes with petrol, um, and the question of whether you can produce enough electricity uh, in the distribution system. Uh, these are all issues. They were there. Everybody knew about them, um, and slowly they're coming into public consciousness. We don't get a lot of nuclear physicists with us, but, but you're not the first by any oh, means, okay. which good. is good. good. Um, you've spoken quite a bit on nuclear fusion. Talk to us about your feelings on fusion. Yeah, so um, we're quite confident that we can get energy out of fusion, whether it's the magnetic variety where you can find the hot hydrogen with magnetic fields, as is being pursued in Europe, in uh, ITER, uh, or in the inertial fusion where you use lasers to heat and compress a small amount of hydrogen. As you may know, there was an advance in that uh, back right. in December. I'm particularly, by the way, attached to that project because in 1995, about 30 years ago, I wrote a report for the National Academies advising the Department of Energy to go ahead with the project, saying, mm. we're not sure this is going to work, but we think it will. There's and do a you good think chance. one of those two technologies is kind of well, you know, it's you a, think about producing. It's a long way from uh, it's a long way from doing power economically with either of those technologies than just demonstrating that it works in the lab. And to my mind, there are two main barriers. One is uh, for the magnetic, the first wall. What do we make the vessel that contains the plasma? What do you make it out of? because the plasma is very hot, it's emitting radiation, and it chews up the wall. And if your wall crumbles after two months, that's not very good. The other problem, which is a problem both for inertial and magnetic, is tritium. So the first generation fusion plants will use uh, two isotopes of hydrogen, deuterium, uh, and tritium. 
Tritium is not natural. It's radioactive and disappears after about 12 years, so you have to make it. And right now, the total world stock of tritium is enough to maybe run one power plant for about a month. Um, and so we're going to have to figure out, demonstrate that we can make as much tritium as is required if this is going to become commercial. You talk so much about things that really aren't out in the public domain. Where do you find the current conversation to be just lacking? Maybe, maybe lacking in truth or lacking in depth? Um, I, I think one is um, climate and energy both are nuanced, complicated subjects. And it takes a fair bit of study to understand all of that. It's not so simple as, you know, greenhouse gases are warming the climate and we're going to hell if we don't stop. And it's not so simple that wind and solar will solve all of the problems. I teach both those subjects to master's students at NYU. Um, and after 12 weeks of each, their eyes are opened up to the complexities of both issues. And so I think a failure to produce nuance is one dimension of what's lacking. The other thing that's lacking is an absence of, and I'll just say it, truth-telling among the media and politicians. And let me give you just one recent example. I talked about it last night in my climate science class. There's a news report that says Hurricane Idalia, which we had at the end of uh, August last month, uh, was the first major storm to hit the Big Bend of Florida. It uh, hit at Cedar Keys, as you may remember. Well, you can easily go to the NOAA website, which lists all the hurricanes that have hit the U.S. back to 1850, and you can see right there in 1896, there was a Category 3 hurricane, as strong as Italia, that hit at Cedar Keys. Hmm. Now, okay, it's a minor uh, misstatement to say Italia was the first one, but if you keep hearing unprecedented, 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 uh, you get a very different perception than what the truth is. And why do you think people are either reporting the truth or even sometimes distorting the truth? Why, why do you think that, because the whole issue around climate and trying to grow governments and grow economies, it's difficult enough without, uh, without distorting the truth. Why, why do you think so many people seem to be telling s stories that may or may not be real? Well, I, you know, it's different for different actors. Uh, I'd start with the media. And so you often have a reporter who is on the climate beat. They're not trained at all in science. Um, they're just reproducing what they get in press releases. Their goal is to produce a story every day or every few days and to generate clicks and eyeballs. And the statement that there's not much happening with climate over the longer term does not generate clicks and eyeballs. For the politicians, I like to quote H.L. Mencken, who was an astute observer of the U.S. in the early 20th century. And he has a line that is something like, the purpose of practical politics is to keep the electorate alarmed by a series of mostly imaginary hobgoblins so that they can be clamoring to be led to safety. And you see the politicians do this, not only with climate, but with other issues, immigration, for example. Anything you can use to alarm the populace and get them to line up behind government action uh, is to the politicians' advantage. Well, well said.
We're going to start wrapping up, but I want to give you a chance. Anything that you see on the horizon that you find particularly exciting, um, you know, as you think about either changes in climate science, changes in technology, I mean, I give you a, a, a broad brush here. Anything excite you? I, you know, I, I can tell you what I'm working on currently, which um, is clearly something that excites me. Uh, emissions will be reduced not so much by reductions in the developed world, but by reductions now and in the future in the developing world. And when you look at the last 20 or 30 years of the developing world, what you discover is that energy use increases steadily and universally among all countries as their economy develops. And understanding what the drivers are, the factors are, that go into that universality is it building infrastructure? Is it providing refrigeration to everybody, electricity, and so on? If we can understand that, we might be able to help modulate and reduce the projected rise in energy consumption over the next 30 years. So that's a science thing. It, it's a social science thing, actually. But I think it's an important uh, way to ensure that um, we're as efficient as we can be going into the future. Well said. I don't want to say you're on an island because you have quite a few people with you, but the totality of the voices that share your views uh, are dwarfed by people who claim to be mainstream client, sci client scientists, well-credentialed. In fact, I, just as I was prepping for this, we see Gary Yohei uh, print in the Scientific American that climate science is stronger than ever, and the assumptions you made were just cherry-picked to prove your point. What, first of all, I want to commend you on the unbelievable you know, strength you have to take a position rooted in science. I completely, completely support you there. But what do you say to your critics like Gary Yohei? Um, I, I think, look, Gary, everything I have written in the book is right there uh, in the official literature. The criticisms you have made are either of things I didn't write in the book or are well-referenced, including some reports you yourself wrote. And so, you know, I've tried to get Gary to debate me through third parties, uh, even to get a good exchange going, and he has refused to do that. What has disappointed me most about the reaction of climate scientists to the book is not that they found anything wrong, you know, that they said, Kunin wrote that, but in fact it's something else. But the quality of the discussion is awful and not worthy of serious academics. They'll put words in my mouth. Mm -hmm. They will uh, change the subject and not respond to what I wrote, um, things of that sort. And that's just not the way to have a serious discussion about these matters. In my own research and in, doing, and in talking with a few climate scientists, Catherine Hehu comes to mind, but quite a few, the, the one takeaway I have is that that body of science is so complex that you have land, you have water, you have deep waters, you right. have clouds, you have, it's, it's just so complex. I, I see you're quite comfortable in what you're saying. You, you're not saying they're right or wrong, you're saying the science is unsettled. What advice do you tell to your children or perhaps even your grandchildren, how do they live their life? What do you, what do you tell them? I, I tell them, and, and in this case they actually listen to me, um, you know, you, you need to have optimism. Human being society is wonderfully adaptable. 
uh, and wonderful at problem solving. We will uh, adapt, uh, as we've demonstrated we can in the past, to foreseeable changes uh, in the future climates. And at the same time, we will slowly develop effective technologies that let us gracefully reduce emissions without compromising on reliability, affordability, or providing energy to the developing world. So a lot more optimism uh, than is generally uh, displayed by young people around, at least in the West. I could talk to you for days, and I think we may have to do that again sometime. But let me, um, uh, I'll have to ask you the question that I'm dying to ask you, because we, we love a magic wand on this show. We ask all of our, you know, panelists to, to take a magic wand, and with your experience and your background, use that magic wand for one thing that in the next year would really have a material impact on this conversation around climate change. So I'm going to wave my wand both forward and backward and, and give you two. Okay. One is that my, I would wish that my fellow scientists would act more like scientists and less like advocates to paint a transparent, unbiased picture of what's really going on